Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. Honestly, I despair of governments and this pathetic, it is utterly pathetic belief that you can still work your way through to a sustainable world through a voluntary mechanism operating within a system of capitalism that is inherently unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, it's as if these guys don't think. Yes, this week's show is dedicated to my conversation with the quite brilliant Jonathan Porritt, founder of Forum for the Future, of course, and a man at the very cutting edge of sustainable business thinking. Stay tuned. Yeah, welcome back. This is uh, episode 37 of the Better Business Show. Uh, really appreciate you coming back to us. If you're a loyal listener, I know we have many of you out there. Uh, thanks for coming back to us. And uh, if you're new to us, then uh, then welcome. Um, there's 36 other episodes to work your way through. You lucky people. Just go to betterbusiness.show. You'll find all of our previous episodes listed there. and you can, you can work your way through those. Now, we're shaking up the format slightly from this week. Um, we're not going to have a news roundup sec- segment that we usually have. As you know, we... We usually do a sort of 10-minute segment with, with Vicky Knowles, uh, all about the latest happenings, who's doing what and why across the world of better business. Uh, we're not doing that in this, this week's show. Instead, we're going to play that out in a separate podcast that will go out on Friday. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying something new. We're giving you all the latest news developments as you leave the office on a Friday afternoon and ready yourself for the weekend so you're fully up to date. Uh, so we're going to try that this week. Um, and that just leaves us with a bit more room to breathe in these main episodes, these main stories that we run. I had such a lovely time meeting up with Mr. Jonathan Porritt uh, last week. There was so much to talk about, so I really didn't want to edit it and cut that conversation down too much. So you're going to get all of that. Um, so yeah, we're going to try and get two episodes of The Better Business Show out each week kicking off this Friday. If you don't want to miss anything, the best way to do that is to subscribe to the Better Business Show newsletter, uh, which will hit your inbox on a Friday, pointing you to both this week's main story plus that News Roundup podcast as well. I urge you to do that. Go to the website, betterbusiness.show. Right at the top there, you'll see a box. Give us your email address and you'll start getting that newsletter. The financial crash of 2008 was supposed to be a great opportunity for the left. Radicals talked about the collapse of capitalism. The more realistic among us believed that a focus on efficiency and belt tightening would at least offer some solid ground for a sustainable world to now flourish. Of course, it hasn't quite turned out that way, as this week's guest knows only too well. He may not like to describe himself as a greenie, not least because his work over the past 40 years has been as much about tackling economic and social issues as it has been about tackling environmental ones. But Jonathan Porritt continues to bang the drum for progressive thinking in politics, in business and beyond. And as you're about to find out during our extensive and wide-ranging interview this week, he continues to despair the lack of government intervention in some to get on the describing that as utterly pathetic. The UK government's insistence that letting companies make voluntary commitments is enough to transform the economy. Of course, his work at Forum for the Future, which he set up back in 1996, has seen him work directly with some of the world's most progressive companies, like Marks and Spencers, like O2, like Unilever. And today, with a focus on bringing companies together to work in collaboration on a range of different projects, he's also helping small, agile and technologically brilliant companies to flourish too. Anyway, here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Jonathan, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you in uh, in London. Uh, we're sat inside the London base of Forum for the Future, uh, a place that I guess you are probably most well known for right now, mm-hmm. perhaps. Uh, but there's a lot to talk about. Um, I mean, how do you describe yourself these days if someone asks, if, who doesn't know who you are, what you do? What do you usually say? Good question. Uh, I've always had real problems describing myself as an environmentalist. Okay. Because Why? I just don't think that's where the core of my work is. I'm really much more focused on a lot of the economic issues, some of the social issues, this much fuller 
strategic picture about sustainable development. And as soon as you're in an environment box, the greenie box, yeah. then you've not only pigeonholed yourself, but also you've allowed other people to say, so you're dealing with that bit of the spectrum, but yeah. you're not dealing with the stuff that probably relates or matters more to us. And anyway, sustainable development has struggled to make the socioeconomic um, arguments as strong as the green arguments, so I kind of have to keep saying that. So I call myself now a sustainability activist, which is um, keeps my campaigning uh, enthusiasm running. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, four days a week, I'm still founder director of Forum for the Future. Yeah, yeah. So what's happening here right now at Forum? What, what sort of projects you engage with? Anything you can tell us about? Yeah, no. I mean, most of well, all our work is kind of in the public domain as a as a not for profit. Um, We've got a lot of really big, chunky, system-changing type projects on the go at the moment. And we're in the middle of our 20th anniversary, and it, it's been a really interesting time to reflect on how the starting premise of the forum, which was to develop one-to-one -one relationships with not-for-profit organizations, public sector organizations, and for-profit organizations, right. but basically dealing with each separately yeah. as a sustainability advisor, critical friend, and so on. Um, worked really well for the first 15 years, to be honest, and built up until we had um, dozens of partners in all the different sectors. Come 2008, um, the financial crash, most of our public sector partners just disappeared. Yeah. And then the election in 2010, the government removed the rest of them. Yeah. So all the regional development agencies, the um, strategic health authorities, the, all the organizations we work, worked with at that regional tier, and most of our local authority partners who then could see the storm coming their way in terms of budgets and so on. Yeah. So our public sector work was thinned right down to about... 20% of what it had been just two years earlier. Wow. Yeah, that was a big hit. So now it's all about big the big hit. boys, it's about the big corporates that you're working Tends with. Tends to be, but we have a very strong interest in innovation. Okay. So we run an innovation network. We do a lot of stuff with startups, yeah. with uh, younger companies, trying to demonstrate how their way of doing things is going to work better uh -huh. for the planet, people, yeah. profit, that old line. Still still important, um, and we very much like to support them because in a way they are setting the pace, they're just much more nimble, they kind of get to the heart of things much quicker. Right. And although there are real benefits in working with large organizations, they are slow and ponderous. Right. Um, when they move, they move with a determination, but it takes a long time to get them up to the line and get going on this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And we do now far more work in collaboration. We don't really do anything like as much work on one-to-one -one basis. We've okay. got some big companies that we still work with on that basis, and particularly the work I do with companies like um, Unilever, uh, m and O2, Sime Darby, big uh, palm yeah, oil company. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I have these four or five very big kind of um, single partner type relationships. That okay. I'm still very involved in. Okay. And uh, is that because they specifically asked for you these companies? Um, well, I've been involved for so long. I've been doing stuff with Unilever since 1996. Wow. Right. So 20 okay. years on. Yeah. I, w I still wouldn't claim I completely understand how Unilever works because it's a very complicated organisation. But I have a yeah. pretty good idea about how things can be pushed along, made to happen inside Unilever. Um, yeah. Worked with M&S for more than a decade. So, you know, these are kind of very long trust-based relationships mm -hmm. where I've developed the the kind of uh, involvement in the senior executives with the chief exec, with the sustainability team, and mm -hmm. have learned how to be useful, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, given your kind of history and your, your background in helping companies yeah. all shapes and sizes, my initial temptation is when I meet you is to say, so what's happening? How are we getting on? Uh, as if you have all the answers. Of yeah, course, yeah. there's the enlightened bunch that you're working with a lot of them. But I mean, what, what about this business response, the, the collective of the, the many thousands of businesses that are, that are having an impact and, and trying to do something? How do you kind of assess how they're getting on, do you think? Given that governments are 
on balance still unhelpful yeah. in terms of framing sustainability in the right way, in terms of introducing uh, changes in how the market operates yeah. to promote more sustainable outcomes rather than less sustainable outcomes, which is where we still are today. Given all that, and it's, very Im it's a very big part of it because businesses mm. can operate to a certain extent within their own envelope, their own framework, but they're massively dependent on what is happening in terms of government interventions, um, public policy priorities, how the market is being incentivized. You know, they can't, they can't ignore all of that. No. That's, a, that's a hugely important shaping influence. But given the government <coughs> is really not doing much more on this than they were 10 years ago, I think it's, I still think it's pretty good, actually. I still think the leadership values have been sustained. Uh, in the companies that are in that progressive vanguard, yeah. there's no reason why they wouldn't be, to be honest, because they've got very confident about what they're doing. They can see how it benefits the company. Mm -hmm. there's, to be honest, there's no downside. There's just no downside. Yeah. And often when we're talking to companies who haven't kind of seen what that journey might look like for them, and, and now an accelerated journey, mm. um, we say, well, just look at what these companies are doing and why do you think they've stuck with it? Why do you think they keep pushing on to the next challenge? It's not because they've got this uh, evangelical save the planet kind of thing going on. No. They do it because it works. It works internally for employees, it works externally for stakeholders, it works for shareholders. There literally is no downside. Mm. And given that, I suppose it, the fair criticism is, well, if that's the case, why aren't they doing even more? And that's when you come to this nexus of relationships between uh, large companies and um, governments. And take something like nutrition, for instance. Yeah. We've got a lot of companies out there who, in the food and agriculture business who raise their game on nutrition. They're pursuing higher standards on the obvious things, you know, whether it's around sugar, fat, salt, whatever it might be. They're looking at providing a better balance of product to meet higher expectations for consumers mm -hmm. on balanced diets and nutrition and so on. But it is just grindingly slow. Right. And that's largely because governments refuse to regulate right. higher standards here. They just still think that the voluntary principle will be sufficient to bring about change, even though we've now got dramatic evidence of overnutrition and undernutrition, if you like, all mm -hmm. around the world. Yeah. The predominant view amongst most policymakers in government is still let's um, encourage, cajole, nudge, but for God's sake, don't bring out the great big regulatory stick. Right. And that just drives me completely mad. And, and honestly, I despair of governments and this pathetic, it is utterly pathetic belief that you can still work your way through to a sustainable world through a voluntary mechanism operating within a system of capitalism that is inherently unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, it's as if these guys don't think yeah. in politics, as if they don't think. Yeah. So it's frustrating for business because of, actually in our conversations we honestly do often spend time talking to business leaders who are saying, oh my God, this could, be, this could all be done so much more effectively if we just had the framework yeah. aligned differently. And these companies that look at the vanguard and yeah. struggle to kind of, as you say, yeah. follow, yeah. they're going to need government gonna, intervention. Well, so. they need a lot more pushing along. Yeah. That's the point. And they don't see the balance of risk management and top-line growth or opportunity. They don't see that. Right. Because you only get to see what that really looks like when you're doing it, and it surfaces. Or when you're in, in trouble, practice. I guess. Or when you're in trouble. That often yeah. kicks off the journey to start with. Yeah. Um, but we, we do need a better way of getting companies into sustainability than, than being kiboshed by some sustainability scandal. That's not yeah. the best way of doing it. It, it. it has been a hugely influential part of it, but it's not the best way of doing it. So you mentioned food, and I was going to ask you which are the areas where you think there has been most, most progress, um, whether it's food, whether the growth in organic or whatever, yeah. whether it's the energy space. I mean, where, where do you see, what sectors do you see the most progress? I think there is 
a considerably higher level of awareness now in global food companies. I mean, they are looking at what the basic constituents of sustainable food production, manufacture, distribution, and so on, really looks like. There's a far greater understanding of that. In terms of implementation, elimination of food waste, for instance, which mm -hmm. is just the biggest blockage between us and a a world in which you could point to a genuinely sustainable food system. Right. Honestly, the progress is pretty mediocre, um, particularly the food waste issues at the farm gate production end, yeah. where we're very dependent in many emerging developing countries to work with farmers to improve the production agronomic systems, distribution systems, logistics, get the food to market because you wouldn't believe the levels of wastage that go on. It's yeah. actually horrendous. So the awareness levels are definitely higher. People talk now more confidently about the importance, for instance, of sustainable protein. We run a big collaborative for companies interested in protein because it's no good just talking about we need more food. Honestly, when I hear a business leader say that or a politician, I just think, oh, for God's sake, it's, you know, this is just a, so obvious it's not worth saying. Yeah. And, and when people tell me, in the next 30 years, we're going to have to grow as much food as we've grown in the whole of the history of humankind, I honestly want to shake my head in despair because it's not about volumes of food. Right. It is about what kind of food grown in what way to produce what outcomes in a better society. Okay. And just simply saying we have to have 40% more food by 2030 actually deliberately obscures the reality. Right. Deliberately obscures that reality. Why, why does it do that? What do you, what because do you it just allows people to say ramp up production mm -hmm. and the problems are sorted. Yeah, right. And those very production systems lie at the heart of some of the worst sustainability problems we face today. Right. Absolutely. <coughs> Whether it's excessively carbon intensive production systems, uh, production systems that are devastating the natural world still yeah. through monocultures or intensive cropping, whatever it might be. Production systems that are just gobbling up water resources, particularly groundwater resources, yeah. in, a, in a demonstrably unsustainable way. I mean, you could point to any country in the world and ask them whether their agriculture is in water balance. Right. As in, no more water coming out of that bounded system yeah. than is uh, going in through natural replenishment, regeneration, recharge, whatever it might be. There's not yeah. a country in the world that is in water neutrality. Right. Not one. Topsoil depletion, we're losing topsoil all over the world, mm -hmm. all the time. So you look at all the big things, soil, water, biodiversity, inputs, chemical inputs, mm -hmm. energy, so the energy in for energy out, carbohydrate type relationship, we're still, you know, we're still massively out of balance. Yeah. So when people tell me all we need to do is double production by X or grow 40% more food by Y, and then they go on to say, and that means we're going to have to do it in even more intensive ways than we do it now. You know they're just not on the page. Yeah. They're just not on the page. Yeah. And I'm quite worried about that because the kind of productivist story mm. is one that lots of the food industry love. Right. You know, yeah, we can rise to the challenge of feeding humankind. Yeah. Fine. Can you do it in a way that doesn't screw the planet for the rest of humankind? Yeah. Answer that question right now? No. Mm. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about the, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, obviously, we've got the, the UN General Assembly going on this week. Yeah. And as a framing mechanism, and there's been quite a lot of plaudits for them. You know, they're quite a useful tool for business. Um, but I guess it's, up to, it's down to interpret how you interpret those SDGs. And, and what do you think about them as a, as a tool to, to be used by business? Um, I, think, I think the SDGs, I really do welcome the uh, emergence of the SDGs yeah. in, our, in our lives, as it were. I think they're genuinely important. I think the work that went into formulating them was very high quality work. They are, they're good. The actual individual targets that come underneath the 17 goals are carefully thought through. Um, business finds them quite difficult to wrap their heads around. Mm. Because in a way, that the natural instinct <coughs> of any company is to say, okay, here are 17 goals. Uh, six, seven, 14, 
16, those are the ones we can do something about. Yeah. We've already got a program here doing this, we've got a program here. We might think about doing a bit more here on this SDG, on this particular goal, because yeah. we know we're a bit weak there. But we'll kind of develop it piecemeal, yeah. and in a way that doesn't recognize the holistic nature of these goals, yeah. which is basically all about the fact that we need to run them. We need to bring forward policies to de deliver them so that the achievement of one goal does not cut across the achievement of another goal. Yeah. So I've just been talking about water. Well, this is two big SDGs, is food production, sustainable food production for a, a world where huge numbers of people still do not have access to enough uh, nutritious food. Um, but we have another SDG that is about water yeah. and about ensuring that our management of water resources is genuinely sustainable. Now, if you only address, I think it's goal two, which is the food production one, yeah. and you just bang the drum for more food, and you don't look out of your peripheral vision mm. at anything to do with water or biodiversity, it's useless. Yeah, It's actually useless. It doesn't help get more holistic not just thinking, but practice on the ground. Mm. So I, it's all in the <clears throat> implementation. Yeah. And when I watch some of the companies addressing the SDGs now, and the, this new business commission that was set up to, after the agreement around the SDGs to help business find ways of making sense of the SDGs, very practically, cost-effectively, all the rest of it. When I look at that, the most critical thing is that they do it in ways that are genuinely joined up and I don't just mean that in a kind of facile way as in joined up thinking I mean genuinely sustainable across the piece okay. social economic as well as biophysical resource management etc and we're that's tough I mean I, I do all this work with Unilever and no no company is keener on making the SDGs part of how they address their sustainable living plan than Unilever. I mean, they've spent a lot of time working mm. out the fit, working out how it helps deliver better on their USLP, the sustainable living plan targets. Yeah. Um, and, w and I see the amount of work that's going into that, and it really is very intensive. Yeah. A lot of companies are just, we'll pick that one there, and we'll pick that one there. And in our next report, we'll say we're contributing to the SDGs. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be too critical, but it's you can see how it, it can just be, it can be reduced to a very easy little bit of pick and mix. Yeah, but it's a tough it's a tough one to crack, as you say, isn't it? I mean, even the likes of Unilever using it as a kind of the way they look at economic growth can often seem quite callous. As in, well, you know, you've got a whole market of, of, of people over here that need food. Well, that's that's our potential. It can come across as quite I don't know, immoral, callous at sometimes, can't it? Uh, why? Those people do need food. That's true. Someone's going to produce the food. That's Someone's true. going to meet that need. Hmm. And I think in a way, companies that are actually in the business of what I would call core human needs hmm. around nutrition, around hygiene, around sanitation, around resource management uh, of a more effective kind, Actually, the case they've got mm. for being brilliant at sustainability is much easier to make. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, well, take, I mean, we loved all the work we do with O2, for instance, which is really, really, has really got its head around the sustainability challenge. But you can see for them, mm. they don't actually make the devices no. in the first place. They sell them, and they're a mobile network, so they provide services via the mobile platforms. Yeah. They've got business consumers and individual consumers who are interested in sustainability to varying degrees. Yeah. But they really have to work up a hard business case to continue to outperform their competitors on sustainability issues because it's not a given. It's not a given that consumers do care enough no. about this stuff. I wish they did. I wish they were out there banging the drum mm. for sustainability so that all the big providers, all the appliance manufacturers, all the platform providers, etc., were responding to consumer demand. But you've, you've followed this for a long time, Tom. You know the story here. Push from consumers, it's not enough. No. It's not enough to persuade companies to start really radically rethinking their customer-facing propositions. Yeah, unless something goes wrong. and then Unless something goes wrong, yeah. 
Um, I wanted to pick up on something that you've been working on for the last few years, I guess, which is your sort of deforestation work with yeah. helping companies, I guess, understand the value of, of land. Is that what it is, the work you've been doing there? Yeah. To help companies implement no deforestation policies. So can you give us a, a sense of what, what you've been doing with, with that work? Yes, and that was, I, I spent a lot of 2015 last year. Right. Very focused on that question of deforestation and the um, oil palm industry, yep. so palm oil. Big controversial uh, story, and we wrote a, a big report on this that was not uncontroversial, yeah. as John Major might have put it. Um, and it was, it, was, it was controversial, and it was controversial because we said some things that um, some of the NGOs really didn't like. And two things in particular. One, you are n you're never going to get rid of all deforestation. Mm -hmm. And to seek to do so can often come across as uh, very aggressive and sometimes counter to the economic interests of the country's concerned. Right. So make the case for minimizing deforestation on the basis of why that will serve the nation and its socioeconomic interests better. Don't just make it on a biodiversity and climate change basis. Make it because this provides for a more secure foundation for the economy of that country. Be empathetic mm. with the needs of poor countries and don't come across as a kind of crusading bunch of Western environmentalists who s sometimes, and I've worked a lot now in Malaysia and Indonesia, and sometimes I listen to the language, I think, God, guys, come on, this is, mm. this is not right. We're talking here, not Malaysia now, because it's grown its economy a lot, and the, the oil palm industry has been a critical part of that economic development. But Indonesia still has very large numbers of very poor people. Right. And if, if sustainable development means anything, it means acknowledging those needs at the same mm. time as we acknowledge the needs to reduce deforestation as much as we possibly can, particularly of mature forests, yeah. particularly of forests that are capable of regenerating, going on becoming a store for carbon. But we got into trouble because we said that young regenerating forests up to a certain level although important from a biodiversity and carbon point of view, wasn't necessarily sacrosanct. You could still have land use development if done in the right way, where you were simultaneously setting aside large amounts of forest and properly protecting it. Yep. And that was the second controversial thing, which was that, honestly, you look around the, the story of attempts to protect forest mm. in many of these countries, particularly in Indonesia, where big claims are made that if you designate an area as a, a you know a special conservation area or you say this is high carbon stock or high conservation value and you put this line around it and you can see how much we're protecting here it means practically nothing right, right. unless you have found a mechanism to ensure that the people who might once have lived in that forest or yeah. lived off the forest on the produce of the forest were in some respects involved in the deal that you're doing about protecting the forest and could see some net gain in their own livelihoods. Right. And I feel I feel passionate about this. You know, we're talking about again forests needing to be protected often in areas of considerable poverty. Not always. There are parts of the world where actually you've now got sufficient wealth in land-based populations to uh, uh, rural populations to provide for very very strong conservation policies that you don't right. need necessarily to continue to find endless ways of investing in local communities and so on but for millions tens of millions of people you still got to find a way of doing this so we said in our report fine set the forest aside call it high carbon stock forest then invest in all the communities around that forest yeah Persuade them to become forest guardians. Pay them to become forest guardians. Don't just say, off limits, you can't touch the forest, you can't burn a tree here, you can't cut it down, you can't hunt anything here. Totally off limits, and here's the border. Anyone who comes in here now is in trouble. Right, right. It isn't going to work, and the whole of Southeast Asia is littered with forest conservation schemes that yeah. were insufficiently grounded. Yeah in the needs and interests of local people. So, and, what, so uh, what happens now? What, what, what's the well, next stage? 
Well, the report was published um, in December last year. Ever since then, there have been some... I, I'm not involved in this now. Sure. I, I, my job was to bring the people together, bring the companies together with NGOs and okay. academics, get the report done, get it sort of peer-reviewed, and then people were going to test things on the ground and see what the story was and work towards a compromise, let's be honest, a compromise yeah. about how to do this. And those discussions are still ongoing. And I think they're ongoing in good faith. I don't detect any sense of hmm. um, companies, as it were, playing fast and loose with this. No, but it's I complex. I mean, it's, it's very complex. It's a tough one. And the industry has you know, really good players, and it has less good players. Yeah. And the haze is all over the news again now in Singapore and Indonesia and Malaysia, and it's not good. And you look at some of the clearing and burning that's going on and it's actually very rarely these days the big big companies that are involved in this although IOI of course is a company that has been suspended from the, the round table on sustainable palm oil and has now been permitted to join again so it's up to its eyeballs still in yeah. controversy and Greenpeace has just launched another campaign against IOI mm -hmm. for its refusal to really implement on the ground the thing that's it's the things it's committed to through the RSPO. Yeah. And this is important. You can't you can't let people off the hook here. You know, this is if we're gonna have a a set of principles, criteria and implemented practice on the ground, we as consumers of those products in the West need to promote and support the companies that do it. Yeah. And continue to pressure the companies that don't. Yeah. It's the only way to make it work in market terms. Yeah, yeah. But it also, does it come back to a lack of kind of government intervention, and a lack of kind of government kind of, uh, well, a, a, you know, apparent existence in these places? I was talking to someone from from Primark the other day. I was talking about Rana Plaza and yeah. what happened there, and you know, some of the, the health and safety regulations in Bangladesh are, are more stringent than anything you'd see in the EU, and yet they're not implemented. Yeah. There's, there's just a lack of. of government existence, I guess. Yeah, no, that is a big issue. There's no question about that. And I mean, I've massively oversimplified just in trying to answer a complex question. Sure. Like, what are you going to do to help protect forests? You kind of fall into the trap of, of sort of going for the, uh, for the things that matter most without recognizing that in many of these countries, the governance issues, yeah. so the relationship between government, people, business is critically important and often woefully inadequate. Mm. And you know, in Indonesia, there's a very, very suspicious tie-up between different aspects of government and people who are into more destructive development. Yeah. Um, the president is very keen to promote best practice, but not everybody in the industry wants to do that. Mm. Uh, a lot of the companies came together last year to set up a special pledge from the Indonesian growers to practice the most sustainable forms of oil palm development. Some politicians didn't like that, felt that it took away the responsibility that governments have for determining standards in their own country, yeah. and kind of put it in the hands of Western NGOs. Yeah. So there was a huge nationalist backlash. Yeah. And in the end, those big Indonesian companies, and we're talking big, big companies, all backed down. Mm. And they just said that they... Um, they felt they 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 found a face-saving way of, of getting off the hook, but basically they just run into very nationalistic, uh, very nasty mm. opposition from some of the political elites in Indonesia, saying um, if Indonesia wants to continue to cut down its forest, it'll continue to cut down its forest. It's got nothing to do with anybody outside Indonesia. You know, these are very strong voices still. Yeah, yeah, tough to deal with. Now, I wanted to just come on to talk about UK politics. We don't tend to talk too much about politics on the show, just purely because our audience is so diverse and people just get utterly bored, I guess, <laughs> of UK politics. But actually, it's a fascinating time right now in UK politics. Certainly is. Uh, your roots are in the Green Party, which I, you've been a member since the, the 70s. Yeah. We just had a change there at the top yeah. uh, with Caroline Lucas yeah. and Bartley. Um, but there's, there's an opportunity, isn't there, really, with the demise of the Lib Dems and, and Labour in you know, continue yeah. the turmoil right now, for a kind of a, a progressive alliance. Yeah. What, what, what would you like to see happen? I'm very, I am very interested in this, and it's, it's not just the post-Brexit mood, although that obviously has shaped a lot of people's 
sensation that there has got to be something different, a better way of doing our politics, of making big decisions like this. Yeah. Um, and there are millions of people who feel badly let down by that, by the whole tone of the campaign and everything. But it's not just Brexit, it really is. How do we keep our democracy um, vibrant and accountable with a wretched electoral system that we've got today, the first-past-the-post system, mm. with our main opposition parties both in complete disarray, I yeah. mean, Labour incapable of presenting itself as a party of opposition, let alone a party of government-in-waiting, yeah. and the Lib Dems still trying to haul themselves back from, uh, from a sort of election. Uh, wipeout, and I don't say that with any sense of um, happiness. I uh, really regret that both parties are in such a mess. And I look at what's happening as a consequence, so no real opposition to the Conservative government's utter mismanagement of the Brexit story. There's, there's you know, eight Lib Dem MPs occasionally splutter something from the back benches. Mm -hmm. and. Labour, Owen Smith, at least in his leadership campaign, made it clear that for him, finding a better route to building our, a relationship with Europe again, possibly having a second referendum, would be an important part of his leadership. Yeah. But of course, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald, they are both Eurosceptics at best. Yeah. I don't think they've said very much about Europe in their election campaign. So we hear nothing from the Labour Party, yeah. really, about Brexit negotiations. And, and it's tragic. So I think there's just a head of steam now about needing to find a better way. And I'm quite involved in a couple of initiatives. One with an organization called Compass, which okay. is, um, has been uh, organized by uh, Neil Lawson for a long time now, bringing the parties, bringing progressive voices together, primarily in the three parties, mm -hmm. Labour, Lib Dems, Greens. Um, and seeing whether there are opportunities now to build more consensus around a progressive political platform. I'm more involved in something called More United, which okay. was launched off the back of the Brexit um, campaign, which is a, essentially early stages of giving people an opportunity to intervene in marginal seats here in the UK. Right. Tory marginal seats, to be specific. Yeah. To ensure that the progressive candidates in those constituencies don't spend all their energy destroying each other. Right. And by one means or another, and it's complicated all the tactical routes to this, yeah. find a way of bringing forward one progressive candidate to okay. take on the incumbent Conservative. And who, the game who might plan be part of the Green Party, might, could be. might be Labour. Absolutely. Okay. Right. And the game plan there is very simple. It's, it's all about we have got to have wholesale governance reform in this country. So mm -hmm. firstly, a new electoral system, proportional representation. Secondly, reform of political party funding so we can get big money out of politics in the UK. It's not quite as damaging as it is in the United States, but it's getting worse and worse, and we've got to get that big money out. We need a new constitutional settlement. The House of Lords is just a disgrace to democracy, Cameron's just made it even more of a laughing stock by stuffing it with all his own post-election cronies. I mean, our democracy is not in good heart. Mm. And we have to, although this is quite geeky for people and nobody really wants to think that we're going to have to devote ourselves to this, we need a new constitutional settlement for the yeah. UK. Otherwise, the Scottish people are going to say, oh, God, you know, we cannot go on dealing with this utterly dysfunctional mm -hmm. system down in Westminster and the Welsh will begin to think again about this and we could just see the UK disappear by omission mm. because people didn't think about what does it mean for England yeah. what are we going to do about England you know most people don't want to talk about that because they think oh my god if you start talking about England the next thing is you'll be cozying up to Nigel Farage and UKIP yeah. you don't need to be a member of UKIP to talk about the future of England it's mm. part of the constitutional mm. settlement of the UK. Yeah. So we're in, in a total mess. And if we don't get some really serious political energy going around those governance issues, then we'll just carry on down this road. And progressive voices will be irrelevant yeah. for at least another decade. And I, you know, for me, I look at the next election, 2020, if 
Theresa May last that long. Lib Dems nowhere. Labour probably still fighting each other. Greens may have a chance of getting one or two other seats as well as Caroline. I doubt it. Uh, Boundary Commission changes have just given the Tories another 30 seats, roughly. Um, UKIP could be resurgent if Aaron Banks decides to pile a few more of his millions into taking on Labour marginals in the north. What kind of a prospect is that? And honestly, the opposition forces today are so weak, divided, and incapable of becoming, of putting forward, as it were, making the next government, that you have, we have to find a different way. I guess there is weakness in the opposition right now, as you say. Uh, plenty of it is about those progressive ideas not landing with people, though. Which yeah. has been going on for you know decades now. Yeah. So something needs to change there too. I mean, Caroline Lucas is brilliant, isn't she? She's yeah. She really does connect, but there's something missing, isn't there? Well, no, yes and no. I mean, it worries me, for instance, that we're all, you know, all of those parties, no, well, Lib Dems and Greens and Labour to a slightly lesser extent, are pretty passionate about getting on top of climate change as yep. a really big thing. Um, we far too often sort of take comfort in the Climate Change Act and all the rest of it, yeah. which isn't really enough any longer. Um, but it's true that if you simply talk about climate change out there in an electoral context, people kind of think, oh, God, here we go again. Yeah. Whereas if you talk about climate change as the single most dynamic way of providing jobs, driving innovation, building export markets, helping young people through new skills, uh, doing the things that we need to do to position the UK economy on manufacturing issues, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. then you think, why would anybody not be really interested in yeah. that? And I, yeah, no, we are not good enough at that. Let's be honest, let's take that criticism on the chin. It's mm. just mm. It's perfectly true that at the last election, nobody articulated that really um, passionately enough, that it was all about jobs and foundations for prosperity for the future mm -hmm. and we've got to get good at that so I I take the criticism and I think that there are opportunities now to learn about that mm. and to make it much more relevant for the future yeah yeah for people who are it's not that they're denying the you know the horror story about climate change in the future but no, no, no. they basically think okay guys we yeah. see that but what do you want us to do we don't have a lot of disposable income to stick solar panels on our roof yeah we're struggling to make our way in the economy. You talk to me about getting rid of my car. If I got rid of my car, I wouldn't be able to do any of the work I need to do. Mm. You keep saying I need to do this, do that, do the other. It, for many, many millions of people in this country, simply coming up with a recipe of low carbon mandates yeah. is not the way of getting people to care about climate change. Mm. Now, when we've, when we've met previously, you've often described yourself as a, an optimist. Uh, do, do you do you have to be to work in this in this game? You know that we that we work in. <laughs> um, I I tend actually, funny enough, I tend not to use the word op optimist. Okay. I tend to use the the word hope rather than optimism. Hopeful, yeah, right. Because I just think hopeful is more grounded in reality. I think there's a kind of shiny, glittery optimism out there, which I've always described as the techno-optimism, of people right. who just get too excited about the next amazing breakthrough on solar power. I mean, I'm pretty excited about the amazing breakthroughs on solar power, I can assure you. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not going to pin my expectations of a sustainable world on the next efficiency gain or price reduction in the next uh, PV array coming out of China. Yeah. Because that's just, that's escapism. Yeah. So I d I, I'm very nervous about the, the kind of full-on techno-optimism. And I'd much rather look at this whole idea of thinking through these technology opportunities with a view to redesign our lives mm -hmm. so that our, both our urban and our rural lives just become better lives right. for people as a consequence of thinking through these technologies, their impact on people's lives, and making sure that this phrase that that resonates now post-Brexit, that those who feel left behind yeah. are not left behind in the way in which we deploy this new set of technology interventions. 
right. and putting that first and foremost, saying this, yeah. is, this is about equity, this is about social justice as much as it is about a low-carbon future. Yeah. And I particularly think that through from the built environment point of view, we still live in a country where disgracefully huge numbers of people live in really poor quality mm. housing and are unnecessarily affected in terms of their health, their budgets, their, their financial situation every year mm. because they're paying far too much money to energy companies that, let's be blunt about it, really don't care. No. Just do not care about fuel poverty in this country and we have a government that just doesn't care just doesn't care so for me I I love to see new solar panels emerging on more and more roofs around the country what I want to see is understanding that our built environment is part of the critical infrastructure of this country yeah we need a full-on quantitative easing type project to invest in that um, housing stock and over the course of the next 10 years to bring every single building up to the standards that you would find mostly find elsewhere in Europe. Yeah. And do that as a national priority and stop beating around the bush here. We know what the health benefits will be. We know what it'll mean for people's quality of life, reduced bills, etc., etc. We know how to do it. Mm. You know, I do a lot of work with the built environment. Um, so I, I, this is all so eminently doable. Yeah. Yeah. that you just think what stands between us and doing it and again the lack of real political opposition on this Labour knows everything there is to be known about fuel poverty in this country mm. yeah. but do they think that's what they should be out there campaigning to put right not so far as I can tell yeah, yeah. so Jonathan I want to sort of end our conversation with a bit more about hope uh, rather than the, the downbeat um, I quite often like to ask our guests if there's any organisations out there they can point to for inspiration or or kind of, uh, yeah, best practice, I guess we would call it. Um, you've mentioned a few of them, the Unilevers and the, the Marks and Spencers. You're not allowed to mention them. Sorry. A any other big companies that we can point to that we're maybe not familiar with or not, may not instantly think of in terms of being a kind of a beacon of hope? Well, look at, some, um, can I talk about some of the little, the smaller companies? Well, yeah, I was going to ask you the next yeah. question, but, but, because but go on, yeah. You know, we do, we do such an uh, uh, amazing diversity of work with smaller companies as well. Two examples. Um, we have a really fascinating project going now called the Living Grid Project okay. with a number of big players, but it's based essentially on some software from a, a, a small company, right? Um, which we have been working with now for the last two years to promote new voltage optimization technology. Okay. It's very smart software which allows companies to work together to reduce the amount of electricity they need at a certain point when they don't need it yep. so they can make it available to the grid to help deal with peaks and troughs yep. in that pattern of uh, electricity usage on the grid. Okay. There's a company called Open Energy and we've been working with them on this project and we've got tons of support for this now and it's really exciting and I look at this and the amounts of money that can be saved, energy that can be reduced, it's just brilliant to, to look at this really, it mm. is extraordinary. Um, so we're doing a lot of work in that space now with energy entrepreneurs and a lot of it's to do with data, a lot of it's to do with smart software, with working into this whole notion of not just digitization but some of the new technologies where you're going beyond digital to the use of big data to the internet of things to this whole slightly out there story mm. about the energy system of the future but honestly that that future is amazing and yeah. we keep ourselves pretty upbeat by working with companies like that yeah and the other thing that has happened recently we've just signed a new partnership with a company called Pucker Herbs which will be well known yeah. to people because yeah, yeah. they use their tea bags and various other bits and pieces um, and this is a company that's still very small, but already making a big impact on people. Isn't it does really care passionately about about making better product available to people. But its real passion is about balanced lives, about healthier lives, about making well-being very practical for people wherever they live and whatever their interests may be. So health and well-being becomes the central premise of a company like that. And for me, 
with a bro broader sustainability spectrum to mm -hmm. play with, so not just the greeny stuff as we started on. Yeah. This notion of health and well-being is at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. You know, people have got to be able to live good, wholesome lives without necessarily being lucky enough to go and shop in fancy retailers where they're paying premium prices over the odds every week. We have got to make healthy lives available for people at any point, at any level in our economy. Yeah. So we're just as interested in that whole story about health and well-being yeah. and how to make that now a bigger part of what a sustainability story looks like for people, yeah. for ordinary people, not, not for the dyed-in-the-wool greenies, but for ordinary people. How do you articulate that? Mm. So open energy and pucker herbs. Yep. We'll add them to the list. Excellent. We'll try and get them on the show. Good. Um, but that's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you, Jonathan. No so thanks for agreeing to be on the show. My pleasure. Very nice to see you again. The always brilliant Jonathan Porritt there, founder of Forum for the Future, and a man who has, as you heard, has his hands in a number of pies right now and really leading the charge for a better planet, something he's been doing for the past 40 years, uh, no let up there. Uh, but I love talking to Jonathan, such an inspiration, full of wisdom, and somebody that always tells it like it is. Uh, you can find out more about everything that Jonathan and I spoke about during this episode. We have the links to, to many of the, the references he made during our conversation in today's show notes. Um, so head over to uh, the website betterbusiness.show for those. Um, and that's it for, for this week's show. We'll be back again on Friday with uh, our news roundup. Uh, I need a snappy name for that, I think. I've got just a few days to come up with something. If you have any ideas, then please do give me a shout. Um, but yes, The Better Business Show is available on iTunes, uh, on SoundCloud. The best place is probably to subscribe to the show so that new episodes hit your devices every time we release one, now on Mondays and Fridays. Uh, we're also available on Deezer, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, those apps if you have those. Uh, we have a brand new Facebook page for you to like and follow, so please do that. Just search for Better Business Show within Facebook. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, at Tom Idle, for all the latest updates and all things Better Business Show. Uh, and also, if you want to get in touch with me, then Tom Idle at narrativematters.co.uk is my email address. Anyway, that's it for now. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>